The Haunted UK podcast is produced and released in stereo. Listening through an environment such as headphones or stereo speakers will ensure you get the best experience. This show is sponsored by CDS Print and Design. For high-quality printed t-shirts, coasters, placemats, mugs and drinks containers, stickers and much, much more, contact Colin or Debbie for a no-obligation quote. You can find CDS Print and Design on Instagram, Facebook and now Etsy. If you love the Haunted UK podcast and you'd like to help keep the lights burning, the wheels turning and the stories rolling, then why not consider getting over to coffee and donating to the show? That's ko-fi and search for the Haunted UK podcast. You can subscribe to donate just £3 per month, the price of a coffee, or as much as you like. If you prefer not to subscribe, then any donation to the show will be greatly appreciated. A target of 30 subscribers is the aim, and with your help, I know that's more than possible. The goal is to be able to release bonus content to subscribers and to get Haunted UK Podcast merchandise out there and available to all you amazing listeners. You'll even get a shout-out in an episode of the main show. So that's ko-fi and search for the Haunted UK Podcast to donate. Thank you. And here are the names of some amazing people who have donated to the show recently. They are Damien Sullivan, Sarah O'Donoghue, Craig Reader, George Wells, Will Flynn, Ronyal Coxham, Chris Lawson, John and Jess Wales, and last but not least, Kevin McKenna. As well as coffee, you can also follow the Haunted UK podcast on Instagram, Twitter at Haunted UK Pod, and on YouTube. Do you love ghost stories? Tales of haunted houses and poltergeist encounters? What about other areas of the paranormal, such as strange creatures, doppelgangers, time slips, and even creepy unexplained disappearances? If you do, then you're in the right place. And these are the topics which we'll be visiting every two weeks throughout the many future episodes and seasons of this show. And just to ensure that you get the best experience, there will be no advertisements throughout the main content of this episode. But please stick around to the end of the show, where you'll hear a small promo from one of the many great podcasts out there, which I know you'll want to check out. The script for this episode was kindly proofread and edited by Marie Waller. For more details about this service, email Marie at mariewaller.proofreading at gmail.com. That's mariewaller.proofreading at gmail.com. This email address will also be in the show notes. Now, without any further delay, let's get this episode started. I received a telephone call from a very distressed Marianne, informing me that her unwelcome guest had been causing absolute mayhem inside her home. Objects were being thrown around, doors were being opened mysteriously and slamming closed on their own. Horrendous thumps and bangs were reverberating around the house. Taps were being turned on, 
their possessions were disappearing from their original places and then reappearing just as mysteriously. And their young child, Robert, began to see people in the house. Excerpt from an interview with Darren W. Ritson, paranormal investigator and co-author of the book The South Shields Poltergeist, One Family's Fight Against an Invisible Intruder. This is episode 29 of the Haunted UK podcast, and in this episode, we're going to take a look at one of the most intense poltergeist cases ever recorded. Poltergeist is a German word which means noisy spirit in English. This type of paranormal manifestation can be extremely dangerous to those who are infested by its powers. Poltergeists have the nasty habit of starting off their haunts in mild forms, such as doors opening, lights switching on and off, but their intensity can, and in most cases does, ramp up to violent and incredibly distressing levels. With most ghost stories and sightings, there's usually a background history to support their appearances, such as the phantom hitchhiker, for instance. A person who was killed in a car accident that just wants to get home, and they'll hitch a lift to make it happen. But a poltergeist is a different phenomenon altogether. The two most popular ways that these terrifying entities usually manifest themselves are either drawing off the energy of the individuals in the house or a specific location, or by being brought into physical existence by a particular person, usually a child, who will amplify the entity's energy. In the first scenario, the activity begins slowly, causing the victims to become frightened, paranoid, argumentative, withdrawn, often causing a breakdown of trust within the household, all of this negative energy then feeds the poltergeist, making it stronger, more efficient, and more violent in its behavior. In the second scenario, the individual, usually a prepubescent child or a child going through puberty, can help manifest the entity into its stronger form. Some theories suggest that it's these huge hormonal changes taking place within the human body that give the poltergeist the energy to feed from. With the majority of poltergeist cases, as quickly as the disturbances start, they can just as abruptly stop. 
It's very rare for a poltergeist manifestation to last more than a couple of years. But every case is different. Not only in its intensity, but also in its cause. The South Shields poltergeist case is one that was recorded in great detail by a number of paranormal investigators, but especially by two men named Mike Hollowell and Darren W. Ritson. Their book, The South Shields Poltergeist, One Family's Fight Against an Invisible Intruder, is an alleged first-hand account of the events and effects that this particular entity wreaked upon themselves and, more importantly, the family involved. But was all of this real? Or were there aspects of this case that were faked? Let's begin by going into the story of the whole incident. First of all, the names of the family and the address of where this incident took place have all been changed to protect the identities of those involved and the location. Although during research for this episode, I did come across an address of 42 Lock Street, but couldn't find a street of this name in South Shields. We can only assume that this is down to the family not wanting media attention, which is completely understandable. Or also in case they are still living at the address. Either way, it seems that those involved wanted anonymity, and in a way it makes the experiences that they had seem a little more believable and genuine. So back in 2005, a young couple named Mark and Marianne were living in a terraced house in South Shields, England, along with their three-year-old son, Robert. Life was generally good and rolling along quite well for the family until December of that year. The couple had noticed that strange, unexplained things had begun to happen around the house. Such as a door would be open when they would have sworn that it was closed. An item that was put down in one room would appear to be lost, but then turn up elsewhere in the house. These were incidents where both Mark and Marianne couldn't be 100% certain that they had misplaced something, or simply forgot that they'd moved an item, or left a door open. They weren't worried or concerned, just a little curious. As the days and weeks went by and winter was in full swing, more strange occurrences began to take place. The couple started to hear noises coming from inside the walls, such as scratching, clawing and thumping noises. Now, this could be put down to the fact that they were living in a mid-terraced house with neighbours both sides. But these noises were also coming from the partition walls between the various rooms. There didn't seem to be any plausible explanation to put this down to, but much more was about to happen to this young family. Noises coming from rooms or through the house started to happen, such as loud bangs, bumps, thudding and even sounds resembling loud footsteps. The doors that would occasionally open or close, causing confusion between Mark and Marianne previously, were now opening and slamming shut. This was also happening to them as they watched, with no visible force or reasonable explanation to give them answers as to what could be causing this. Incidents like this went on and on, with no signs of stopping, and it was all the time intensifying in both volume and frequency. The young couple were at a complete loss, and with a young son in the house as well, it became a question of how long would it be before something like a slamming door would hit their son, 
or even them? What damage was this invisible force capable of? As you'd expect, friends of Mark and Marianne began to notice changes occurring in this once relatively happy family. Events began to escalate even further now, with this seemingly unknown force gaining more and more energy and power. As the couple would cower away in various rooms of the house, completely frightened and at their wit's end, the entity was appearing to draw at their very life forces to push things to a whole new level. Furniture was now beginning to move in every room of the house, and not just small items either. Cabinets, sofas, chairs, tables, wardrobes, even beds would be moved around with ease by whatever it was that was causing all of this disruption. Mark and Marianne would say that the noise was incredible as they would listen to furniture being moved around in bedrooms above them as they would sit in terror in their living room, wondering what would happen next. On many occasions, the couple would even come home to find large items of furniture had been moved into different rooms of the house. Mark and Marianne recalled that one particular frightening incident could have come straight from the 1982 horror movie classic Steven Spielberg's Poltergeist. After hearing more bumps, bangs and scraping noises coming from one of the bedrooms upstairs, they entered the room to find that several chairs had been balanced on top of one another, on top of a table. How could all of this be happening? What had this young family who were living a relatively peaceful and happy life done to deserve all of this? What was responsible for all of the incidents and, more importantly, could it be stopped? Incidents continued to happen with greater and greater ferocity. The couple also started to notice extreme cold spots throughout their house. These temperature fluctuations seemed to move around the house from room to room, putting a block on the obvious sceptical excuse of the heating malfunctioning. One night, after Mark and Marianne had put Robert to bed and had decided to go to bed themselves, the ominous phenomenon decided to turn its attention and anger directly to the family themselves. As they both climbed into bed and settled down in the darkness of their room, Marianne was suddenly struck on the head by something soft. She immediately bolted upright in bed, alerting Mark in the process. They both sat deadly still for a few seconds as their eyes adjusted to the darkness. Then they were trying to work out what had either been thrown at or dropped on Marianne. There, on the floor, was their son's cuddly toy dog. Robert wasn't even sleeping in their room and the toy wasn't in Mark and Marianne's bedroom when they went to bed. Literally from nowhere, another toy came flying from the darkness, striking Marianne again, then more, then even more. The couple were being bombarded by dozens of toys, striking them from different directions. In an effort to shield themselves from the assault, they pulled up the quilt over their heads. But this was where things became even worse they both began to feel a strong force pulling back at the quilt from the foot of the bed. The more they pulled against the invisible force, the stronger it pulled back. This went on for a short while until Mark suddenly screamed out in pain and let go of the quilt. As quickly as the attack began, it suddenly came to a halt 
all went completely calm and quiet. Marianne switched the light on and looked upon the scene of dozens of their son's toys lying on their bedroom floor with absolutely no reasonable solution to explain not only how they got there, but what had been throwing them at her and Mark. Meanwhile, Mark was trying to touch his back, complaining that something had scratched and clawed at him. He lifted his t-shirt to reveal a total of 13 long red scratch marks running the full length of his back. But what or who could have done this? There was only the two of them in their bedroom. Something was very badly wrong in the house. By morning, all traces of the scratch marks had disappeared from Mark's back. Who would believe them now? Around six months had passed since the beginning of the paranormal disturbances, when whilst at work, Darren W. Ritson, eventual co-author of the South Shields Poltergeist, was approached by one of his work colleagues. Knowing that Darren had an interest in the paranormal and had taken part in a number of investigations, his colleague began telling him some of the details of her daughter's friend, who was having terrible problems with some sort of haunting at her house. She told Darren that the family in question was desperate for help and passed her contact details on to him. A short time later in June 2006, Darren made contact with Mark and Marianne. He listened with intrigue and amazement about all the happenings inside their house. Darren suggested that both of them should begin to keep a diary of all of the experiences to date and then continue to keep updating the diary with each new occurrence. They both agreed and began to detail the hell that had somehow become part of their everyday lives. Darren told them to make sure that they noted who had witnessed the incidents as they happened. They also had Darren's phone number so that they could call him if they needed any further help and advice. Over the next few weeks, more incidents were recorded in the diary and it seemed that the entity which was terrorizing the family had now taken a shine to Robert's toys, using them to taunt, hurt and frighten them in many different ways. Mark and Marianne would often find extremely disturbing things when arriving home, such as on one occasion opening their front door to be greeted by the sight of a toy bunny belonging to Robert, seemingly looking at them from the top of the stairs. Between its paws was a box cutter. Who would put the toy at the top of the stairs? And who had gone to the trouble of finding the box cutter and putting it between the toy's paws? There was nobody in the house. On another occasion, the family came home to find the terrifying sight of Robert's rocking horse hanging by the reins from the latch on the attic door. Again, nobody had been at home and they had all left the house together and arrive back home together. More toys would be used by the poltergeist as missiles to purposely hurt Mark and Marianne, and it was a regular occurrence now to see toys rolling across the floor by themselves. More disturbingly, though, were the strange voices appearing to come from certain toys, like eerie moaning noises and voices in pain. Toys which required batteries to work were also now turning on by themselves and operating as if by some unseen force. Then the messages started to appear. 
Robert had a Magna Doodle-type board, which he would happily scribble away on for hours on end. Yet Mark and Marianne had no idea that this item would be used by the poltergeist to communicate threatening messages to them, especially towards Marianne. Some of these messages would read things like, You're dead. Die, bitch. Just go now. R.I.P. and go, bitch, now to your mum. There was no way young Robert could be doing this, and both Mark and Marianne would swear that neither of them had left the messages to be found later. All through this period, Darren had kept in touch with the family and offered whatever help and support he could. But around a month after his first contact with Mark and Marianne, he received a phone call that would thrust him, and a fellow paranormal investigator, right into the thick of the disturbances. By the time Marianne made the phone call to Darren, she was not only distressed, but also confused, frightened, exhausted and depressed. She could see no way out of the situation that she and her family had found themselves in and couldn't understand why such an evil entity would target them. She told Darren that their unwelcome guest had been causing absolute mayhem inside their home. Objects were being thrown around, doors were opening mysteriously, and slamming closed on their own. Horrendous thumps and bangs were reverberating around the house. Taps were being turned on, their possessions disappearing from their original places and then reappearing just as mysteriously. And most disconcerting of all, their young child Robert began to see people in the house. On top of all of this, there were the threatening messages being left on Robert's Magna Doodle toy. The disembodied voices, toys being found in completely unimaginable positions, and the violent attack on Mark while they were in bed, resulting in physical wounds, which then strangely disappeared, leaving both Mark and Marianne feeling utterly helpless. She made it clear to Darren that she didn't want any more advice. She wanted him to come to the house to see firsthand what they were going through. After further discussions, Darren agreed and a date was set for his first visit to the house. He stressed to Marianne that in the meantime, the family must continue to keep the diary up to date, noting down everything that was going on, however small the disturbance was. She agreed to do so. Leading up to that first visit, Darren decided to contact a man named Mike Hallowell, who was, and still is, one of the leading paranormal investigators in the north of England. Based in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, Mike was ideally placed to help out with the investigation, if he could be persuaded. Darren went through Mark and Marianne's case with Mike and strongly insisted that, in his opinion, if this phenomenon was real, they would have a chance to not only help the family out of a horrible situation, but to also document a real poltergeist manifestation and finally have undeniable evidence of a paranormal event. Mike agreed to accompany Darren, saying that he would tag along and see what happened. The day of their first visit soon arrived, and as Darren and Mike drove to the house in South Shields, Darren gave Mike a more detailed account of all the disturbances that had taken place. 
To say that Mike was surprised by the sheer amount of incidents was an understatement. Yet both men fully agreed that they were expecting to turn up at the house and witness absolutely nothing. This was usually the case with many alleged poltergeist infestations, which both men had been called out to investigate throughout their separate careers. But this mid-terraced house in the small coastal town of South Shields would give them way more than they ever thought possible. Arriving at the house, they were both greeted by Mark and Marianne and invited inside. Darren and Mike assured the couple that they were there to fully support them throughout this whole incident, but needed to get a deeper understanding of what they were dealing with. Detailed interviews were conducted by Darren and Mike, going through every single event that had happened so far. Monitoring equipment was set up in certain areas in the house where activity had been at its most potent. It took just four hours before the poltergeist started to give a small hint at its ability by hurling a yellow nut from Robert's toy DIY workbench across the room, bouncing off a cupboard door and then striking Marianne. As she reacted in pain, Darren and Mike could only watch in amazement. There was nobody else in Robert's bedroom apart from the four of them. So what had thrown this item across the room? Not having enough time to comprehend what had just happened, Darren and Mike watched another toy which was on top of a chest of drawers slide off the edge and land in a metal bin on the floor with a clatter. Whilst Mark was indeed near the chest of drawers, nobody saw him move an inch and his frightened reaction only reinforced Darren and Mike's belief that there was definitely something strange going on in the house. More events happened right in front of them in Robert's bedroom. A ball seemed to materialise from nowhere and land on Robert's bed. When the ball was picked up and handled, it was reported to be hot. And this is a regular characteristic with items which are touched or moved by a poltergeist. This was also noted by Morris Gross in the famous Enfield poltergeist case, which took place between 1977 and 1979. Moving back downstairs, Darren, Mike, Mark and Marianne continued to talk about the possible causes of the disturbances and to also document what had just happened, leaving behind recording equipment switched on and monitoring Robert's bedroom. Before leaving the house, they played back through the recordings which they'd taken and were again stunned by the results. There was absolutely nobody else in Robert's bedroom but something had been making noises. They could all clearly hear what sounded like someone or something shuffling along the floor, strange pinging sounds, knocking and banging, as well as what sounded like coins spinning on a wooden surface. Coughing was also heard, as well as a weird blooping sound, all without anybody being in the room. All persons were downstairs in the kitchen. Darren and Mike felt that they had literally hit the paranormal jackpot. And this was just the first time that they'd ever set foot inside the house. But they did have to keep in mind the possibility of fraud and fakery. Could this young couple, who seemed so genuine and so absolutely terrified, be somehow rigging all of these events up to fool everyone who had witnessed them, including Darren and Mike? They both confirmed that they were watching Mark and Marianne like hawks throughout that first visit. 
They couldn't see how it was possible to perform all of these acts of paranormal activity without being found out. More visits were organized. More events happened. But what was becoming apparent was this simple fact, that this poltergeist phenomena was getting stronger and more violent in its purpose. As the weeks and months rolled on, Mark and Marianne were slowly but surely turning into complete nervous wrecks. There were no boundaries now, and even Robert became a target. In one incident, Mark and Marianne found their young son wrapped tightly in a blanket from his bed on his bedroom floor, completely unable to move. A plastic table had also been balanced on top of him, which would have been seemingly impossible for him to have done by himself. They found him in a trance-like state, staring into space, glaring at nothing. On another occasion, Robert went missing inside the house. Completely panicked, they searched the house for their son, only to find him again tightly wrapped in a blanket and shoved inside a small cupboard. The violent behavior even escalated to the spirit trying to use real weapons. Many times, knives were found on floors of rooms in the house which had gone missing from the kitchen. Mike had an extremely lucky escape when, after walking through the front door and making his way to the kitchen, a large carving knife was thrown at him, narrowly missing him and hitting a television that was on a shelf. Darren and Mike also witnessed firsthand the savage attacks which would rain down on Mark. Just as he had experienced the poltergeist attack him in bed months earlier, it would attack him again, but this time much more viciously. As before, the attack took place at night. Mark was awoken by something scratching his chest. He quickly got out of bed and took his t-shirt off to see what was happening. Mark's sudden movements and painful cries immediately woke Marianne up, and she switched the bedroom light on to find Mark's chest deeply marked with long red scratches. But as they watched, they were terrified to see the scratches going deeper and actually becoming cuts. Who or what was doing this to them? Marianne quickly got on the phone and called Mike who lived closer to the family than Darren did. Mike called for a taxi and arrived at the house in the early hours to find Mark and Marianne completely terrified exhausted and utterly defeated. Was this entity ever going to stop? Mike tried to calm Mark and Marianne down, but the poltergeist wasn't finished yet. It began to attack Mark for the second time that evening. As quickly as he could, Mike grabbed his stills camera and switched it to video mode and began recording. Whilst both Mike and Darren will admit that the video quality isn't brilliant, it still allegedly shows scratches and marks appearing on Mark's chest, being inflicted by an unknown and invisible force. In total, Mark was attacked five times, and on one occasion his assault by the poltergeist was witnessed by a total of 11 people, four of whom had high-quality video cameras that captured the whole event. As the evidence mounted, the spirit ramped up the level of abuse even further. This time, in the form of text messages. When these events were taking place in 2005 to 2006, a text message could be sent to a landline and a digital voice would read the text to the person who answered the phone. 
It started when Darren was at the house with Mark and Marianne. The landline phone rang. Marianne picked it up and said hello and was greeted by a robotic voice saying hi a number of times. The voice then repeated the number of the mobile phone which had sent the message. It was Mark's mobile phone and he was sat by Darren with his mobile phone on the dining room table. He hadn't touched it. As an experiment, Darren decided to get everyone present to place their mobile phones on the table and then they waited. As they were talking, the landline rang again and when Marianne answered it, the digital voice said hello a few times. Another call came through shortly after and this time the voice said sorry. Both times the number was Mark's and by the third time the landline rang, Mark's mobile phone didn't have a SIM card or battery in it. So how was this possible? The messages then started to appear on Marianne's phone, with the threats becoming more intense. Texts would read, The bitch will die today, as well as, Going to die today, going to get you. With everything else going on around her, Marianne had finally had enough and said that she needed time away from the house and the entity. She now felt that she was on the verge of a complete breakdown. Darren and Mike tried their best to assure her that these texts were the poltergeist's attempts to push her further and further over the edge, to make her more and more frightened, and then to feed off her terror. But after they left the house after one particular stayover, Marianne broke. She arranged to stay at her mother's, but the entity wouldn't allow her to get away that easily. As quickly as she left, the text messages started again, with one saying, Please don't go. I will come with you, bitch. Marianne called Darren, panicking that whatever this entity was, it would follow her to her mother's house. She commented that she would now be afraid to even go to sleep. Then, as if the poltergeist was actually listening in on the conversation, another text message came through to Marianne's phone saying, I can get you when you're awake, and I'll come for you when you're asleep, bitch. As well as this going on, the disturbances in the house were still coming thick and fast. Two separate experiences would stay with Darren and Mike forever, and these would give the investigators a look at what the entity actually was. Late one evening, Darren, Mike and Marianne were in Robert's bedroom when they all became aware of a dark shape moving around on the balcony outside Robert's bedroom window. All three of them watched the figure walk straight through the window separating the room from the balcony and join them inside the house. They described the apparition as being around two metres tall, completely black but three-dimensional with a face that had just dark voids where its eyes, nose and mouth should have been. Even without eyes, Mike said that the figure looked straight at him and seemed to emit nothing but pure evil. The investigators had previously set up a camera in the room, but they were too engrossed in the sighting to remember to switch it on. The apparition melted away, leaving Darren, Mike and Marianne completely stunned and terrified. They did get another chance though, and this was the second of the two experiences. A few days after this sighting, 
the apparition made another appearance, but this time it focused its attention on Mark, physically attacking him. Darren, Mike and Marianne watched helplessly as the figure inflicted long, deep scratch marks all down Mark's back, some so deep that they began to bleed. All three witnesses described the figure using what looked like sharp talons on the end of its fingers to inflict the injuries upon Mark, and then seeing Mark's skin turn a darker colour where the marks were, as if he'd been sunburnt. The usual events continued to happen, such as furniture moving, loud bangs and knocking noises, lights and taps turning on and off, cold spots materialising in rooms and then moving around, toys and other items appearing from nowhere and dropping to the floor. Then all of a sudden, silence. The phenomenon seemed to stop completely. A whole month went by with no activity at all. Then the poltergeist returned. Just as Mark and Marianne had thought that the entity had burned itself out, it came back. But this time, mysteriously only for a month never seemingly to torment them again. It seemed that after a period of almost 12 months, the poltergeist had finally released its horrifying grip on the young family. No more incidents were ever recorded, and it's not known whether Mark, Marianne and their son Robert still live at the address. Darren W. Ritson and Mike Hallowell organised all of their evidence and wrote their account of the whole experience in their book, The South Shields Poltergeist, One Family's Fight Against an Invisible Intruder. The book was a success, which presents an intriguing, detailed account of the entire event. The two authors have toured the UK, giving lectures and have even accepted invitations to universities to recount their experiences, but this whole incident isn't without its critics and sceptics. Many sceptics state that this was simply an extremely elaborate and well-executed hoax, acted out by the family themselves. This wouldn't be the first time that a poltergeist case has been faked, and it certainly won't be the last. The authors and paranormal investigators have also come under fire, both Darren W. Ritson and Mike Hallowell allegedly collected a huge amount of photographic and video evidence from their time on the case, but literally nothing has been released. A few photos of a plastic bottle seemingly balancing in a way that defies the laws of physics, and some grainy video footage doesn't go anywhere near to proving the existence of the phenomenon that was allegedly making the lives of Mark and Marianne a complete living hell. There have been many people who have replicated the balancing plastic bottle photo using, you've guessed it, simple physics. The big question that remains is why would you hold on to evidence? If you have the literal holy grail that can show the scientific world that these types of paranormal entities really do exist, why would you not release it? Sure, you would want to earn money from your discoveries, but restricting all this evidence and data seems counterproductive. Why has nobody ever come forward who took part in some elements of the investigation? Or friends or neighbours? 
With all of the alleged activity taking place in the house, surely someone would have noticed something. It was stated that both Darren W. Ritson and Mike Hallowell were waiting on the making of a documentary about the whole saga before they would release any further evidence. As far as my searches are concerned, there is no documentary and there is no release of evidence. So where does that leave us? Well, as with all of these stories and incidents, it's simply down to what you believe. Would a young couple and their three-year-old son really go to all of this trouble to stage a hoax poltergeist case? And moreover, would two highly respected paranormal investigators be fooled by all of the incidents that took place over the seven months which they were involved? Let's face facts here. A book deal, some lectures and a number of interviews wouldn't make all of them into millionaires. And what about the anonymity? Newspapers and magazines would have definitely paid for all of their stories. But they chose to keep relatively quiet. Especially Mark and Marianne, whose identities are still unknown to this day. Every day, thousands of us move into new houses and flats to begin new chapters in our lives. But we never quite know exactly what's gone on inside our new home. Even if they are new build homes, does the land which they are built on harbour dark secrets and energies? So, take this as a friendly reminder to have a good look around when you move into your next home, keeping your eyes on every little detail. Because the next person who could encounter a poltergeist could be you. Thank you so much for listening to Season 3 of the Haunted UK Podcast. And even though we've come to the end of the regular episodes of this season, we've still got listener stories to come. So stay tuned. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Haunted UK Podcast. But before I go, I'd like to ask a favour from all of you amazing listeners out there. The show's end-of-season finale revolves around the experiences and stories from listeners just like you. So if you've had an encounter with any element of the paranormal and you'd like to share your story, then I'd love to tell it for you on the Listener Stories finale episode. Simply type up your story and email it to hauntedukpodcast at hotmail.com. That's hauntedukpodcast at hotmail.com. And in the subject section of your email, title it Listener Story so it's easy for me to find. All stories are treated with the utmost privacy and respect. And if you wish to remain anonymous, then that's no problem at all. This podcast is recorded, mixed and mastered at my studio, Pink Flamingo Music Productions in Hells Owen in the West Midlands, England. If you have a piece of music you'd like mixing or mastering, or if you have a podcast that needs title music writing, or maybe you want your whole podcast editing and prepping for distribution, then why not get in touch with me via email at pinkflamingo.musicproductions at hotmail.com. That's pinkflamingo.musicproductions at hotmail.com with your inquiry, and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. For a list of all research sources which I found helpful for the writing of this episode, please see the show's notes. Thank you again for listening to and supporting the Haunted UK podcast. So until the next episode, stay safe and take care. But before you go, 
why not check out the following great podcast? Oh, hi there. This is Kate. And I'm Dominic. And we are your hosts of Shitting Bricks, the podcast. Every week, we'll bring you an episode of What Makes People Shit Bricks. Is it a fear of death? Deep water? Running out of wine? Cannibalism? We take a warp look at these topics using examples from history that are the epitome of some scary shit. You can find us on all the regular podcast streaming services like Apple, Spotify, and Google. For exclusive content, including behind-the-scenes nuggets, links to weekly topics, and maybe even merch in the future, head to Shitting Bricks Podcast on Instagram and YouTube. But for now, drop your dax, pop a squat, and let's get into it.